Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now is Jonathan Last. <clears throat> He's a, excuse me, award-winning journalist who we've discussed a number of topics with before. He's senior editor at the Weekly Standard, a Washington-based political magazine. Author of What to Expect When No One's Expecting, America's Coming Demographic Disaster. And most recently, he's edited The Seven Deadly Virtues. And it's great to have you with me, Jonathan. Thanks. Al, thanks so much for having me again. You used humor here. You didn't want to be uh, sanctimonious about discussing virtue. No, no, we didn't. Do you, do you remember Bill, uh, Bill Bennett's great book of virtue? I do, yeah. Yeah, so that came out in, God help us, it was 1993, <laughs> yes. right? It feels like it was yesterday. Uh, and it's great, and the truth is, this book is, my book is in many ways a, a valentine to his. Um, but when I went back and reread it for the first time in a long while, uh, it's really tough love. <laughs> like it, it's Bill Bennett like he's like 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 a mean nun with a roll, you know, ruler, and he's going to wrap your knuckles. You're going to be charitable or else. Mm. And... Uh, I just thought that worked in 1993 because, and we were such a different culture, such a different society. If you remember, there was a big scandal in 1993 when somebody on MTV asked Bill Clinton, do you wear boxers or briefs? Yeah. And people were actually scandalized by that. And today that seems quaint, right? I mean, well, yeah. The of Anthony Weiner and everything else we've seen. Yeah. Even by the standards of Bill Clinton, now that we know about it. He's a watershed president and when it comes to <laughs> pop culture. Yeah, so... So anyway, so that's why we just thought, you know, the country has changed too much. Uh, if we if we do the the tough love thing, we're not going to get a hearing. And we thought one of the one of the ways to get a hearing by people is to to be fun and funny and entertaining. And so what the book is is really kind of a stealth missile, you know. So it's I think it's a very good, it's a very good time. I mean, we we engineered it to be that way. Lots of funny funny writers like P.J. O'Rourke and Christopher Buckley and Andrew Ferguson. Uh, but the idea is that you could give it to, say, let's pretend you have a niece who's 20 years old and she's, you know, off a of college majoring in God help you sociology. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, she has a nose ring and she wears Che Guevara T-shirts. Uh, you could give it to her for Christmas and she's going to laugh and have a good time with it. And only like two days later realize that she's being gently catechized. You know? <laughs> Receiving a moral education, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's it, that's the idea. So it is a I would say a, a stealth missile in that way, and it is also uh, like my my demographics book, which you had me on talk about a couple of years ago. It's a stealth Catholic missile. Too. Yeah, <laughs> so I yeah. try to sort of smuggle Catholicism into these things without ever without people ever really realizing it. Well, you know, it's a funny funny thing because we've heard people talk a lot about relativism over the years. I'm not convinced people actually practice relativism. They might answer that they're relativists on, que- on surveys or something. But it seems to me people do have some sense of virtues that are binding upon them. They have some sense of a moral law that's binding upon them. Uh, they just have uh, their own arbitrary list that they've drawn up. At least the culture has given us a list which is uh, n- different than the traditional uh, set of virtues we've had. I think you're, you're totally right. Now, I... In the, in the book, I sort of finger. I call these the modern virtues. The yeah. people. Mm-hmm. Let, let me know if these sound uh, if these sound familiar to you. Freedom, convenience, progress, yep. equality, authenticity, health, and then of course non-judgmentalism. Yeah, that's that. <laughs> right. That is the big one, right? That's no. the big one. But you know, I think I, it is interesting that we have not gone towards the wholly relativistic, libertine moral demolition derby. Though, I mean, we our culture is not great, and it's you know, I say we are. I mean, we're maybe not on a rocket sled to hell, but like a snow yeah. sled to yeah. hell. Yeah. Uh, and uh, but it's interesting that we haven't gone in the, to- the a total 
the total opposite direction of having no adherence or interest in virtue, qua virtue at all. And I would argue that that's because we are hardwired yep. for virtue. We are hard, you know, if you're going to be really philosophical about this, you would say, you know, so the cardinal virtues come to us actually from Plato and Aristotle and then later St. Paul of Tarsus. Mm-hmm. Uh, you would argue, I think, if you're going to be deeply philosophical about this, that these are things which were not invented but rather discovered. Right. Yeah. You know? right. And that we, we are hardwired to seek these things out because we cannot live our lives fully. We can't live the best version of our lives without them. Yeah. Yeah. And I, there was a, a book, I think it was 2012, that came out by Jonathan Haidt. He's a moral psychologist at the University of Virginia called The Righteous Mind. Yeah. Why good people yes. are divided by politics and religion. He argues that, too, that there's something that we're, we're uh, inevitably uh, morally judging creatures. In uh, that this has actually served us quite well, and we should we should come to grips with the fact that we are always going to be making moral judgments, and that we're always going to be making uh, some people going to be uh, we're going to consider some people uh, overly self righteous, and uh, we're just we're going to ha- we should learn how to navigate in those waters. Uh, but we don't. We'll never get entirely away from some sense of of virtue. I think the question is. Um, when you look at the so-called modern virtues, the ones that you line up there, let's take non-judgmentalism, for instance. People think that by being non-judgmental, and I've actually run across a, a college student who told me uh, he wasn't convinced that the Holocaust was uh, immoral, and by that he was no he was no racial thinker either. He was just afraid to exercise a moral judgment. When they do that, they actually think that they're being good people, right? They think they're, they think, I mean, they think they're being charitable. Yeah, and this is, I mean, the confusion that comes from that, and the reason this is so confusing, I think, is because those modern virtues aren't bad things. I mean, right. taken in right, right. measure, yep. uh, even non-judgmentalism, right? It, the right version of non-judgmentalism is really just what our grandmothers told us, which is don't judge someone until you've walked a mile in their shoes. Yes, exactly. And that is a perfectly sensible thing. Uh, the problem is that these, these are second order of goods, and what we've done as a society is we've elevated them to the first rank. And that's where all the problems come in. That's why it becomes so confusing. Uh, you know, what I, what I argue in the book is that these modern virtues are, are good things. They're second-order goods. But what makes them second-order is that they deal with the superficial aspects of the person. They deal with sort of how your person interfaces with the world. You know, that's what health is about. That's what authenticity is about. What is so powerful about the cardinal virtues is that they are about the inside foundation of who and hmm. what you are. Very good. And about sort of how you organize your own existence. And that's, that's what makes them foundational. That's what makes them sort of, you know, it's all about cardinality. In the Catholic world, we're, we're crazy for cardinality. We mm-hmm. understand that mm-hmm. um, in ways that I think, you know, non-Catholic society has a little bit of a harder time understanding things like cardinality and subsidiarity. Mm-hmm. And, and we don't. We, we have the language for that. We have the, you know, I would say that we've been talking about that since we were all in our cradles, as opposed to our cradle Catholics. So, yeah, I think that's what happens. And you know what? What you get is when you make this mistake of taking these modern virtues and making them the first order, you get these tensions that seem crazy, right? So, like, uh, one of them is, is smoking, right? So we've decided right. as a society that smoking is terrible because it's not healthy. And so people who smoke are terrible. History's greatest monsters, right? <laughs> <laughs> Smokers are the new lepers, except that we are sympathetic towards the lepers because they didn't really mean to catch leprosy, but the smokers, they deserve what they got coming <laughs> 
so that's and that's because we that's because of health, the modern virtue of health. On the other hand, we have smoking marijuana, which we have decided is in fact a very good thing. And we are like changing laws and changing society around to make it easier for people to <laughs> right. smoke marijuana. And that's because that's freedom, man. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And so that is that's organized around the claim of that individuals, society should have no claim on individuals. Individuals master their own fates and mm-hmm. they make their own decisions. Society can't fence them in. But of course, it's crazy to have a society which uh, idolizes marijuana smoking, but yeah. <laughs> smoking tobacco is terrible. Yeah. And yeah. that's what this incoherence results from this. Yeah, uh, indeed. And, and you, you mentioned, uh, I mean, running through the book is this uh, idea that um, no single virtue is by itself sufficient. And in fact, uh, it can be, if, if it's absolutized, it can be destructive. It's corruptible. Yeah, I, that's you know, and it's one. This is one of the things actually I didn't expect going in and reading the reading the essays from my my cast of all star contributors as they came in. Uh, almost all of these, almost all of the writers hit upon this on their own, and I think they're they're absolutely right, and it's so crucial. Any one virtue by itself is corruptible if mm-hmm. you pursue it monomaniacally. And so, like, take curiosity. Curiosity is an incredibly important virtue. Without it, we would still be living in caves, mm-hmm. you know, clubbing animals with sticks. But uh, if all you are is curious, then you're just a gossip or, or worse than that. That's right. Yeah. Jonathan, hold it there. We'll come back and continue the conversation. Jonathan Last, my guest, taking a look at his uh, newest book, The Seven Deadly Virtues, essays by uh, featuring P.J. O'Rourke, Christopher Buckley, Jonah Goldberg, Andrew Ferguson, and others. I'm Al Cresta. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Jonathan Last. Looking at his most recent uh, contribution, it's a a collection of essays on the seven deadly virtues uh, featuring P.J. O'Rourke, Christopher Buckley, um, Jonah Goldberg, uh, Andrew Ferguson. You have favorites in here? I love all my children equally. (laughs) Uh, you know, I, I do have I do have a favorite. Actually, I have a couple favorites. One one real favorite. Um, uh, do you know James Lilacs at all? He writes for uh, he's a columnist for National Review. I don't. And, I don't know him. I'm and uh, and from Minneapolis Star Tribune. Uh, he's a wonderful writer, and his virtue, the virtue he got stuck with because of me, was simplicity. Uh, and the reason I assigned him simplicity is because in his personal life, uh, he is a hoarder. <laughs> <laughs> And so, you know, he lives up in Minneapolis, and he has this house stuffed with, like, tickets from the World's Fairs in the 1950s and, uh, you know, press passes from every Democratic National Convention going back to, you know, 100 years. Uh, (laughs) That's wild. In fact, an entire closet down in the basement, which he simply refers to in his family as the Closet of Mysteries. Oh, (laughs) that's got to be something, yeah. (laughs) And, uh, And so I assigned it to him sort of ironically to, you know, to chastise him for hoarding. And the essay he turned out is precisely about hoarding. But what it is is it's an explanation of how it is, it is us who assign things meaning and that this assigning of meaning to small things is deeply important uh, to sort of us and our families. And it is one of the ways that we sort of uh, pass things down through the generations. And I, it's one of these essays that you can't sort of, I can't do justice just explaining to you why it's so great. Um, all I can say is I've read this piece probably 35 times in the course of editing the book, 
and I laugh out loud, and I actually tear up and cry a little bit every single time. Um, I read a lot. You know, when you're a writer, <laughs> some people don't understand, like, writing means that you write 10% of your time, and then you read for right. 90% of your right. time. This is probably my favorite essay that I've read in the last 10 years. Is that so? So, yeah, it's it's just it's just extraordinary. If it, if you don't want to buy my book, that's fine. Go to the library and just sit down just, and read, just this, read this, this little essay by James Lilac. It's something else. Yeah. Well, it, it actually, it looks kind of charming. Uh, looking here, sometime around 1997, a New Yorker died and left some cufflinks from the World's Fair. And the kids went through the drawers, sighing, wondering why Dad kept all this junk. They had no idea that he bought the cufflinks because he'd had the best day of the summer with a pretty girl from up the block who hadn't given him a thought until he got that job at Alexander's and fixed himself right upright with a new suit and sharp shoes. And when he asked her to go to the fair, she said, why not? to herself, and then why not to her girlfriends? It's not like he's so hard to look at. They took the subway. Anyways, it goes down about the significance of these cufflinks because they were paired with a major, a great moment in his life. Yeah, it's, and the whole the whole piece is like that. There's a passage where he talks about having the uh, gold from the teeth of a great-great-grandfather who, uh, who fought, <laughs> you know, but who fought uh, in the Civil War. And, uh, you know, and his do- when he explained this to his daughter, his daughter was like 13, he's like, Dad, that's gross. And he says, no, you can't ever get rid of this. He said, you know, his breath passed over this. He got he picked himself up off of the battlefield after being wounded, came home, got married, and the only reason you and I are here was because of this man. And it's just it's so <laughs> powerful. Good. It's really... No, I love it's, it. <laughs> it's tremendous stuff. Uh, and then there's other, I mean, there's other great stuff in it as well. Uh, I would say, you know, Matt Labash, who uh, is a colleague of mine, yeah. the Weekly Standard, yeah. Yeah. a totally gonzo writer, he, he got chastity, which was the virtue everybody wanted to write about. Hmm. So so ripe with comic possibility. And, uh, and Matt's, Matt's is fantastic, too. Uh, do you, when you look around, you, you make a distinction between, uh, you know, I, I was... Uh, already uh, quite the adult and raising kids in the early 1990s, and I remember the Clinton presidency. And you used that earlier as a, a kind of a watershed uh, morality before and after the Clinton presidency. Uh, do you see any signs in our culture now that make you optimistic uh, about the nation's future? Oh, no. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, no. I, I mean, I shouldn't be so glib. No. I... Uh, you know, I'm I'm... Well, hope must always have the last word, right, as John Paul told us. Sure. Uh, but on the other hand, I am sort of temperamentally conservative, which means that I always expect the worst is about to happen, mm-hmm. and after that, something worse will happen again. Yeah. Uh, but on the other hand, what I said to you earlier about how we haven't turned into the amoral demolition derby, right. that right. to me is helpful because I don't think I would have expected that. Um, if I had been thinking about this stuff seriously, say, in like 1975, and mm-hmm. a lot of people, you know this because you're a little bit older than me, but a lot of people don't realize that what we think of as the 1960s didn't really happen until the 1970s. It, that's you know, the true. In a, in, a, in, a, in a widespread way, that is absolutely right. Yeah, the 60s really go from like 1968 to 1979 or so. Yeah. Um, and you, if you'd been sitting in the maelstrom of that when like America was really coming apart at the seams, you would not have expected, I don't think, that it would have turned out to the point where we are now, which is not a total demolition derby. You know, mm-hmm. like we are, in fact, even puritanical about something. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. We would never have been back then. And so that's hopeful. And the other thing is things change. You know, just because we're on one trajectory now doesn't mean that we stay on that trajectory for forever. Uh, 
we've had great awakenings in America. We've had you know two of them in our history. Uh, that isn't to say that there wouldn't be another one. Um, and so that that makes me a little bit hopeful. I think uh, you know sort of despite my despite myself. Yeah. Well, no, I think you, you raise a very good point, and that is things have not spun out of control, like uh, I remember people predicting back in the late 1960s. Now, but I, I, I'm curious about why. In other words, what, was there something about uh, this nation and the way it conceives of itself, or something about, uh, you know, the, 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 the rootedness in the Judeo-Christian tradition? What is it that you think has kept, or is it just by human nature, that uh, survival requires that we not go off the rails so so widely? Well, that's a deep question. Um, you know, I mean, if I thought, thinking about this only for five seconds, the really optimistic answer would be that it was this that period, 1968 until 1979, that was the outlier. And that yes. that okay. is the thing which which does not fit, you know, which of these things does not look like the others. And right. so what has been happening is that we have been ever so slowly regressing towards the norm. And so that we are slowly moving back towards what looked like normal society, normal civilization, normal morality. Uh, and I don't know that I fully believe that, but I'd like to believe that. Mm-hmm. Um, because that it really, that period does stand, if you study American history, that stands in such stark contrast to everything that went before it, really going back to the founding. Yeah, uh, yeah. And, and that's, uh, and of course, the other problem is that that happened globally. I mean, the 1960s didn't just happen in America. They happened no. all through Western Europe. They yeah. happened in Japan, even. Um, so uh, Yeah, well, I, you, there's something to that. I, I was talking, uh, went to a wedding in Connecticut, where I grew up, and uh, people, uh, young people, uh, listening to them talk, they were pining. It, it, that's the word. They were pining for uh, a return of a culture, which I don't think ever existed entirely. But they were they wanted a culture in which you would hope marriages would be for life. With that, you would have neighborhoods in which. Um, Everybody would know one another, and your children would uh, grow up uh, with, you know, reliable adults uh, that you actually knew something about. They were pining for a, a culture that they imagined existed. Uh, it was never perfect, but I thought it was funny that these were young people who were not raised as evangelical Protestants. They were not raised, you know, as serious Catholics. They were just raised in kind of this American pop culture ethos, which uh, stresses freedom, convenience, progress, equality, authenticity, health, and non-judgmentalism. And yet they still had this hunger for a certain common good, a certain stable society in which there could be, you know, virtues of kindness uh, towards your neighbor. I I thought that was interesting. They were not interested in, you know, filling their veins with uh, illegal substances or drinking themselves to death, or dancing themselves to death. You know what, in a way that I think that one of the really evocative uh, sort of conflicts in America is like the, the very, very small, tiny, internecine conflict that we have over music in the Catholic Church. And I'm yeah. sure you've seen this like all over the place. Sure. So you go into any parish, and the people who want like the you know, Latin Palestrina complicated sacred music mm-hmm. of, you know, of the distant past are almost always the young people. And they are then like pushing back and rebelling yeah. against the, you know, the, the 60s era, you know, sort of older clergy types in many cases mm-hmm. who want mm-hmm. tambourines and guitars. And, 
you know, without casting aspersions on either either side of that, I think that is that's basically the same thing you're describing now, uh, but sort of writ large and taken out of the Catholic Church for the country, and you you see that everywhere. I think, and that's true. And again, that's a hopeful sign. I think. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I'm I'm anxious to see if it gets if the if the conversation gets rich on this. Like I said, I'm just I'm starting to notice it, and I think it's it's curious. I'd like to see where it goes. Uh, let me let me come back to the book. Uh, the book, again, is filled with uh, a look at these uh, virtues, the everyday virtues, chastity, simplicity, thrift, honesty, fellowship, forbearance, integrity, curiosity, perseverance. And uh, really, these are, these are written, there's some beautiful writing in here, hilarious writing, a very keen and, and sharp writing. Uh, did you decide to go with the concept of virtues, though, because you actually think people want to read about virtues? You know, this is, uh, I'm supposed to have a very serious answer for this. And I'm, I'm supposed to tell you, well, you know, I had been, Al, I had been in a cave in Greece reading Plato for three months, and I was <laughs> contemplating virtue. Uh, but the reality of this is, so I, I met, when I was doing my, my demographics book, I met this wonderful uh, gal who runs Templeton Press. Her name is Susan Ariano, and she's so wonderful that I became great friends with her while she was rejecting my book. Oh. You know, which, which tells you how great she is. <laughs> That's always right? nice, yeah. So we've become buddies over the years, and uh, we were, this is literally true, so not this summer, but the summer before, we were just on the phone catching up, and she said to me in an offhanded way, you know, I've always wanted to publish a funny book. Who do you think I should get to write it? And so I gave her five or six names. I said, you know, P.J. Rourke, Christopher Buckley, or mm-hmm. Jonah Goldberg, or mm-hmm. Ferguson. And then I said to her, you know, or actually, you could just do a collection of essays and get all of them, and then it'll be really funny. And uh, so we just started spitballing topics. Well, what would you get them all to write about? And then I forget what I think. I think I'll give myself the credit because she's not here to take it. Um, I think I said virtue would be really great because virtue is inherently funny because it lets you talk about vice. Um, <laughs> right, right. And, I mean, this is literally true. I, the, the next morning I signed a contract with her and you know, twelve literally twelve months after that, I held like an actual physical copy of the book in my hand. This never happens in book publishing. This is it's pure serendipity. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, and so of course it's all downhill in my career from here. Like I'll never, <laughs> I'll never have as much fun as I did with this. <laughs> hey, you have to answer a question for me though. What is the city that Templeton Press is in? West Philadelphia. Well, they say West Conshohocken. Oh, when we get West Conshohocken, this is the Philadelphia area is full of these old Indian names. Okay, I just want to make sure. Conshohocken is one of them. Well, yeah. I, I grew up in Mamawagwin in uh, near New Haven in Connecticut, but oh, West okay. Conshohocken. Good. I want to make sure I have that. We'll be right back. Jonathan, last my guest. The seven deadly virtues are topic. And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Jonathan Last. We are taking a look at uh, this recent book uh, that he's edited, featuring P.J. O'Rourke, Christopher Buckley, Jonah Goldberg, um, Andrew Ferguson, uh, Christine Rosen. And it's called The Seven Deadly Virtues. And uh, these are, again, a look at 
you know, prudence, chastity, fortitude, but really, and also the modern virtues of non-judgmentalism, health, authenticity, and puts a comic, uh, really a comic twist to all of this. Very edifying at the same time. So this is uh, humor is a wonderful way of uh, getting a oblique angle on things. Wanted, I wanted to come up, uh, though, and ask you about some of the correspondences here. Uh, in the list, there's hope and there's health. Is there a real connection between the two? Hope being the cardinal virtue, the uh, uh, the theological is, uh, virtue, actually. And Yeah, hope is a theological virtue. Uh, I mean, health is, oh, gosh, I, I'm sort of reluctant to, I mean, the truth is health is not a virtue, per se. It's probably a value. I mean, we're going to be really strictly philosophical. Probably a value, not a virtue. But I was conflating the two for, the, for my purposes, sure. because this is what one does. Uh, I don't know if there is, because we, we really should, we should be grateful to have health. Yes. Uh, but, but it is less, I mean, it, at least in our understanding as Catholics, um, it is kind of immaterial, right? I mean, if you have it, that's nice, but this body is for this world, and, you know, we use it for as long as we have it, and then, then we move on. Uh, and Giving, I would say, giving up, not giving up, but letting go of that as something that really guides you mm. is probably important to living, to living sort of a, a good Catholic life. I would say I do not do this well myself, um, but uh, I would say I'm, I'm always impressed with you know, like priest friends of mine who sort of have you know very sophisticated like, hey, look, you know, she's a body, and uh, I think they're right. <laughs> well, I, the reason I, I brought it up is because I've, I've noticed uh, people who are feeling healthy often are very hopeful people. Uh, and the difficulty comes is when you don't have, you're not feeling very healthy <laughs> yeah. in how you exercise hope in the, in the face of that adver- uh, physical adversity. Um, and I think that's, you know, that is one of the, to my, in my mind, one of the great, one of the great tricks. Uh, how, how do you do that when you're under the oppression of a body that just won't do what you believed it was created to do? But, uh, you know, it's it's no easy trick, right? I mean, I make it sound so easy. Because, <laughs> so sure, it sounds easy for you to do it. Um, but of course, it is. I mean, and this is why you can't. I mean, you can't maybe some people can, um, but uh, I would expect that for my own self, I I cannot and will not, when that time comes, be able to do it without grace. I mean, yeah. that's, that's the type of thing that's so hard that you can't do it by yourself. Yeah. No. Uh, and and. This is this is why you have the Divine Mercy Chaplet, and this is why you have uh, you have our Lord. I mean, it's like it's so nice being on EWTN Radio where I can say this. Like, on, like all <laughs> yeah, it's true. Other, other radio shows, I can't have a conversation anything like this. People <laughs> would look at me like I was crazy. Right. Well, l- let me tell you, your favorite virtues. What are they? You know, so my or what are your favorite, least favorite virtues? That might even be more interesting. Oh boy! <laughs> so the least favorite, of course, are, are chastity and temperance. Yeah. yeah. Uh, two virtues that, if if everyone practiced them in concert, very few of us would be here. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> uh, my my favorite virtue is not actually in here. Uh, I, I included in my essay myself, but I didn't give it its own chapter, and that's gratitude. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, there's a great Cicero line about gratitude. He says, "Gratitude is not not only the greatest of the virtues, but it's also the parent of all the others." And I think that that's right. Uh, yeah. I mean, gratitude is the place where you have to begin, and. It's important in sort of your perception of the world around you and in establishing your motivations for interacting with the world around you. Um, I would say, like, when you think about how one wants to change the world, uh, a lot of people, I would say people on the left, um, will often begin with, we must change the world because the world is terrible. Mm-hmm. And I think that, that that approach colors it, colors you and and makes you harder and 
and makes it harder for you to then deal with the world around you in yeah. a way that isn't sort of adversarial. The proper approach to change is, I am so grateful for all the work that preceding generations have done to get us to this point, and I would like to make my own contribution to make it better that. as yeah. well. Yep. Right. I mean, that's. I agree. That's really that's that is the way. And if you start from that way, again, it's the idea is the same. You want to enact change, but but that I think is the much healthier and and more humble way to do it. And so everything builds off of gratitude, mm-hmm. uh, to, to my mind. Yeah. Um, St. Paul, Paul sees gratitude at the very beginning. That is the, uh, in that, uh, his, uh, his statement there in Romans chapter 1, uh, right into chapter 2, his argument is that um, at that time the pagan world, though they had access to knowledge of God through the things he had made, yet suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness and refused to give thanks uh, so the uh, the inability to give thanks for one's existence is a real problem. Uh, you, you, to be able to say thank you establishes a real primitive relationship between you and who. <laughs> There's right, Andy. You know? Yeah. 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 And I, I even think for my secular friends, um, you know, I— this is one of the reasons I, like, you know, like fetus up ratio, you, could, you can know these things by reason alone, yeah. I think. Yes. And, uh, you know, what I say to my, my secular friends about this is, you know, so if you really believe that there is no Lord, there is no God, mm-hmm. uh, then you ought to be doubly grateful because things, there's no reason things should have turned out as well as they have. That's right. <laughs> you know? That's right. I mean, here you are sitting in a Starbucks having a nice coffee in a world where people are not running after you with machetes. Uh, you know, yeah. there are not giant monsters. I mean, really, this is, you know, the chances of it turning out like this are one in, in, in a bajillion. Yes. Uh, and so you ought to be grateful that, that it has turned out as nicely as it has. Uh, I, I had a phone call the other day, staying on this, this theme. had a phone call the other day from an atheist discussion on the we're discussing the topic of miscarriage. He was furious. He was angry. Um, his wife had suffered immensely because of a, a miscarriage. And he you know, was arguing against God's existence. And I, I suggested he give me a call when we could talk about atheism in full because that day we were really talking about miscarriage. But I also pointed out to him, I said, you know, the, the, the idea that you're, you find that this was such an injustice that was visited upon you makes me think that you're not really that much of an atheist, only on the grounds that you still think there's someone to blame for what happened, and that your wife's suffering is the result of some agent um, who you can now withhold your love from because he's treated you poorly. And I'm, I'm hoping he'll give a call back, because I, I do think this uh, the problem with atheism is there's no one to thank ultimately, nor is there anyone to blame ultimately. You've just got, you know, matter in motion. Oh. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And you know, I, I what I often hear when I talk with friends who who don't believe uh, is, I would say about half the time they sound like people who are angry at God, not yeah. people who don't believe in God. Right. And that's right. you know, I want to tell them this is a very different thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. and you should deal with it differently. You should. You approach this differently and figure out why it is. Why are you angry at God? Go talk to him. Sort yeah. of work it out. Yeah. He'll listen. Yeah, you know, he'll yeah he's, he's not threatened. Uh, he's, he's not yeah. threatened by your anger, you know. He's not going to be mad at you. He's not going <laughs> to be taking it personally. Go talk to him. Work it out. That's why he's there. Uh, and that's, the truth is, I think that's a be- much better problem to have, right? I, mean, I do. If you have people who are, you know, in sort of spiritual or even a spiritual crisis, um, much, much better that they be angry at God than that they sort of be numb. Right. And, no, I, I agree. Nothing. 
Authenticity, listed as one of the seven modern virtues in your list here. What is that? Authenticity is this notion that the great, the great sin is hypocritical, being hypocritical. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find this actually to be terribly pernicious. Um, you know, it, it makes the perfect enemy the good all the time. Yep. Uh, it, it does all sorts of, of terrible things. Um, and it, it strikes me as just wrong. You know, uh, again, it's, it's a, I said these things were second-order goods. Authenticity might even be a third-order good. Like, hmm. it is good to be your authentic self, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but if your authentic self is, you know, is a bad person, then, uh, <laughs> then it's not good to be it. I mean, so Jonah Goldberg's <laughs> chapter is about integrity. And, uh, you know, he, he touches on President Obama. Do you remember this back in 2008? President Obama was asked what his definition was of sin. And he said, well, sin is when I am out of alignment with my own values. <laughs> and that is like the the perfect the perfect embodiment of the idea of modern authenticity. Yeah. And I, so Jonas, I missed, by the way, I missed that one. I don't know. Oh, you that is such that. a oh, great yeah. line. <laughs> Whoa. And so Joan so Jonas says this would be like then if you went and talked to Hannibal Lecter and you said, What are you having for dinner tonight? And he said, Oh, I'm just sitting here having a pizza. Well, then he's being inauthentic, because his authentic <laughs> self likes eating people, right. and he is out of alignment with his own values. This is, uh, and it should, again, it just points at how shallow these things are. Oh, that's good. That is good. Uh, was this a, I mean, I'm just curious, because you're dealing with some great writers here. Was it difficult to edit? No. Yeah. No, it was okay. difficult, not because, precisely because I was dealing with such great writers. The, for me, the hard work was done after I had blackmailed everybody into signing on to the project. Um, and so that once, once I, you know, I'd sent them copies of the pictures I had of them uh, in compromising <laughs> positions. Um, and this is where I, you know, so I've been in, gosh, everybody has this self-image of themselves as being like, you know, young, wet behind the ears type. But uh-huh. you know, like I've now been in this for, I've been at the Weekly Standard for 18 years. I was going to say, that's no short time. <laughs> no, no. And so I was sort of, you know, I sat down to, to do the list and I realized, oh, Gosh, I, I actually know most of these people already. Yeah. Yeah. There were a couple I didn't. Uh, so, I mean, just to share a story. So Christopher Buckley is in this book, and it's very, very special to me. Um, so Buckley is, I don't know if you know him, he's a novelist and satirist. Uh, uh, he wrote Thank You for Smoking. Yes, I know I know of him. We've never talked. Yeah, incredibly, incredibly funny. He write, actually, I think he's the only American writer who living who you could really genuinely compare to Evelyn Waugh. He's wow. that, that funny. Really? Uh, okay. And I had read him, the first time I read him, I read his first novel, The White House Mess, when I was 14 years old. <laughs> and I read it on the beach over summer vacation. And it was the book that made me want to be a writer, and it made me want to move to Washington. Uh, and it literally never occurred to me that someday I would get to know him. And it really, really never occurred to me that I would be in a book with him. Isn't that uh, something? Yeah. And having him in was unbelievable. And of course, then he turned out to be such a such a nice guy. I mean, he, I emailed him. You know, really out of the blue, you know, I, I said, look, you don't know any idea who I am. Would you be interested? And like the next day, you know, we talked back and forth a little bit. He said, yeah, that sounds great. <laughs> and so once I had all these guys in, um, you just don't have to do much when you're editing P.J. O'Rourke and Christopher Buckley. You know, I mean, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's, an easy, it's easy money. Yeah, yeah. No, no, I was, I was just curious because I, I would have thought that uh, once you were able to, you know, persuade them that this is a project they wanted to be part of, then you probably were in pretty good shape. Yeah. Uh, then you have to make sure that your writing, um, <laughs> your writing I did, is I, I comparable. Very cleverly, I very cleverly positioned my introduction as the the serious spinach of the book, and so what? And I say up front, I said, "Look, if you want to flip ahead to P.J. O'Rourke, I am not offended. Go right for it." <laughs> yeah, but I will give you the brief 
serious philosophical stuff, and then you can move on and see the funny. <laughs> Jonathan, thanks so much. Well, thanks for having me. Jonathan Last, it's called The Seven Deadly Virtues. It's a collection of 18 conservative writers writing on the virtuous life. It's hilarious. And uh, again, published by Templeton Press, I'm Al Cresta.